Okay, good morning, everyone. Welcome back to our study of Second Kings. We begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Okay, we left off in chapter 13, and we are coming up on some very climactic parts in terms of the history and narrative of what's going on. So, I will do my best to point these out as we go along. Of course, we we continue with one of our sub-themes, which is the challenging technical nature of these sections due to the divided kingdoms, the lining up of timelines, the flow of the narrative, some people sharing names, etc. So, pardon me and bear with me as we move through this, especially if I uh, somehow stumble or misspeak. As we go along, be sure to point that out so I can get that right for those uh, viewing online. Now, by, by climactic here in chapter 13, last week we looked at the death of Elisha. And we're soon to see the death of Hazael. In fact, we're going to pick up at chapter 22 with Hazael. And if you recall, um, all the way back to 1 Kings and all the way back to Elijah, this, this promise that God gives to Elijah that he's going to bring three characters, three men, uh, to enact his judgment and his will upon Israel for the good of, of the 7,000 who have not bent the, kneel, the knee to Baal. And God willing, you know, I imagine... Um, expanding his kingdom. But these three are Hazael, Jehu, and Elisha. Now, Jehu, we've seen, uh, he's already come to his end, but here we see Elisha come to his end, and then shortly thereafter, Hazael come to his end. And so, in terms of the sweep of this history and the sweep of the, the narrative, as the author of First and Second Kings has put it, this is a, you know, these are big moments. These are big climactic scenes. Okay, what else do we want to remind ourselves moving as we move in um, forward into these sections? We're, we're nearing the end of the kings of Israel. Well, we want, to keep, we want to keep in mind that a king is an anointed one, and an anointed one is a Messiah. Okay, we want to keep that in mind. We want to tie that in more deeply with the promise that God makes to David that David's son will reign. You recall this kind of prophecy speaking about the Messiah. So our our focus then at this layer is focused on the king of Judah who is reigning from the city of David on the throne of David um, and by virtue of these things is a type of the Christ to come. Along this line of typology and analysis, we would think of the king of Israel as um, as an antichrist, an anti-anointed one, one who reigns over God's people not in the seat of David, not in the way of the Messiah. So even even just this idea of the divided kingdom and the reign of a king in the north brings to our mind the antichrist, the anti-king, the anti-anointed one. 
All right, one more layer, and this from kind of a different angle, but one more layer of analysis and typology we can bring to bear is then the qualities of the individual kings themselves. Are they faithful in the way that David was faithful, especially the kings of Judah are always compared to David? Are they faithful or not? Insofar as they're faithful, they're positive types and examples pointing forward to the one who will reign, the true anointed one, the true Messiah, our Lord Jesus. But as we have seen tragically, most of them are not positive examples. Most of them are antichrists. Okay? So I think important for us to really ingrain this in our minds because when we get to the New Testament and we see this language of antichrist, it can strike us, at least in English, um, or maybe a superficial reading, it can strike us as having not much biblical referent. Like where, where does this antichrist stuff come from? This Christ-antichrist comparison that uh, so fills certain sections of uh, the New Testament. Again, we have to point back to these kinds of scriptures where we see the king as the anointed one and the anti-kings as anti-anointed ones, Christ and antichrist. So this is where this typology, this is where the background comes from in terms of Old Testament text, Old Testament thinking. All right, so with those major prefatory remarks out of the way, let's jump then into chapter 13, verse 22. And we'll look here at uh, the demise of Hazael, which then will bring, that, will bring that thematic chapter to a close. God's promises made, all the way, made to Elijah all the way back in 1 Kings 19. Now that whole thing comes to a conclusion. So, verse 22. Now, Hazael, king of Syria, oppressed Israel all the days of Jehoaz. But the Lord was gracious to them and had compassion on them. And he turned toward them because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and would not destroy them, nor has he cast them from his presence until now. If we, were to, uh, if we were to do some sort of like, you know in the Wolfmuller book from our earlier study where there's gigantic font that springs out of nowhere? If there was a section to put in gigantic font that springs out of nowhere, it would be this section here, okay? Because what do we, what do we know of Israel, the northern kingdom in particular, or even thinking of Israel and Judah, Israel as a whole? Um, have they in any way exhibited a corporate faithfulness to God? No, quite the opposite. Of course, the three most prevalent religions infiltrating both the north and the south is Baal worship, golden calf worship, and Yahweh worship. And sometimes Yahweh worship mixed in with elements of the Baal and golden calf worship. So. Israel is not keeping up its part of the Sinaitic Covenant. Remember, point one of the Sinaitic Covenant is you shall have no other gods before me. Israel has other gods everywhere. Okay? So with that in mind then, look again at verse 23 and see how this stands out. But the Lord was gracious to them and had compassion on them. So here we see even in the Old Testament. You know, God in the Old Testament gets a bad rap. 
And do you remember the early church heretic Marcion? He so misread the Old Testament, he thought that the God of the Old Testament was a God of fire and brimstone, and the God of a New Testament, the God of love and mercy. So much so that Marcion argued, this was a major early church heresy, that there were two different gods. God of the Old Testament, God of the New Testament. Here is a verse where we see how thoroughly uh, that is debunked by the text itself. The God of the Old Testament, the God of the New Testament are one, and God uh, is gracious and merciful. As we see here, he has compassion on those who deserve it not. Why? He turned toward them because they earned and merited it? No, because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Okay, because of his promise, his covenant with the fathers. Um, if you remember this covenant, he puts Abraham to sleep. It's a unilateral covenant. It's God's own work and doing. And that promise is twofold. It's one whole, but it's twofold. That is that the offspring that comes from Abraham, the offspring that comes from Isaac, the offspring that comes from Jacob, the Messiah will come and through him all the nations of the earth, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So this is a messianic promise. And then the second aspect of that is that all of the offspring, plural, they'll outnumber the stars in the sky, the sand on the ground, etc. And that, not strictly speaking, referring to the biological offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but rather to those who are true sons of Abraham, those who share Abraham's faith in Yahweh and in the Messiah. Okay, so um, this is straight up Christ in the Old Testament scriptures, in its own unique idiom and language, uh, preaching Christ as loudly as possible, and God has mercy on Israel for the sake of Christ and this Christological covenant that he establishes with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, then again with David, um, with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, even before he establishes the covenant of the law. And then, um, because he does that later with Moses, and then even after the law is established, the covenant with David, and so over and over, the dominant covenant of the scriptures is the covenant of Christ. It precedes, I mean, this is where, this is where Old Testament and New Testament, you have to be a little careful, you have to be a little nuanced. It's true enough, and it works, and those distinctions are helpful. But really, the, the initial covenant, uh, the covenant of Christ, precedes the Sinaitic covenant. And Paul wrestles with this and deals with it. I don't mean to say wrestles with it, like it's perplexing to him. He doesn't. He deals with it and he treats it. And he says the covenant of the law was added chiefly to amplify the covenant which preceded the covenant of grace in Christ Jesus. So the law, shorthand, shows us our sins and shows us our need for our Savior, that Savior which was promised even before the coming of the law. All right. So moving on then in 2 Kings, verse 24, when Hazael king of Syria died, Ben-Hadad his son became king in his place. A little strange because if you go back and see who was ruling before Hazael, his name was Ben-Hadad. And remember he was sick and uh, he sent Hazael to Elisha to say, hey, am I going to recover from this? And Elisha says, yeah, he's going to recover from the illness, but he's still going to die. And then Elisha tells Hezael he's the one who's going to rule. Remember this? 
And then Hezael goes home and he tells the king, Ben-Hadad, he says, yeah, you're going to recover from your illness, but you're still going to die. And so as he's recovering from his illness, remember what Ben-Hadad goes in? He, he grabs like, um, I, can't, I can't remember the exact language, like a towel or a sheet. He gets soaking wet with water and smothers him and kills him. So interesting, <laughs> I don't know why, it's peculiar. Interesting that Hezael killed Ben-Hadad and then apparently named his son Ben-Hadad. That a little, I don't want to get into too much like psychology here, but it's a little creepy. All right, verse 25. Then Jehoash, the son of Jehoahaz, oh gosh, this is the one I can't do. Jehoaz, no, that's not right. Jehoahaz, took again from Ben-Hadad, the son of Hazael, the cities that he had taken from Jehoahaz, his father in war. Three times Joash defeated him and recovered the cities of Israel. Okay, so what's the main point of this? The main point of this really is that Hazael is now gone, and that chapter is closed. Um, Jehu, Elisha, and Hazael are all uh, deceased, and um, God's word to Elijah back in 1 Kings 19 is fulfilled. And now, and, um, you know, this would really constitute a major break in the text and, and kind of a major shift in the text because now we move on toward the end of uh, Israel, in effect. That's the, way we, that's the way we swing. It's not to say that there aren't still some loose ends to wrap up. There are. We've got the line of uh, Jehu still sticking around for a bit longer, but this marks the beginning of the end. All right, any thoughts, any questions uh, before we go into chapter 14? All right, 14, verse 1. In the second year of Joash, the son of Joahaz, <laughs> I'm going to struggle with that, sorry, king of Israel, Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, look at that, Joash, king of Israel, and Joash, king of Judah, we've got two different Joashes, anyway, Amaziah began to reign. He was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His, mother na his mother's name was Jehoadan of Jerusalem, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Okay, finally, finally. Few and far between these, these kings that generally do what is right in the eyes of the Lord. Now, what to point out here, though? Once more, we've got a reference to the, the, mother's, uh, the mother of the king. And, you know, I want to go back and look at this because the thought struck me that this might be a feature that is exclusive to Judah. At least in this section it is. I find that very fascinating. We remarked before that it is very interesting that wherever the line of David, um, the sons of David, those kings in the line of Christ, wherever they're reigning, their mothers are mentioned, not their fathers. And I've pointed how this is a type of Christ, where Christ has a human mother, but not a human father. And so this icon and image, this Old Testament type of, of son who is king and human mother, but apparently absent dad, um, is, is a perfect precursor to Christ who is going to rule, who is going to have an earthly mother, and of course a heavenly father, no, no earthly father. So... 
um, a, a way in which the text subtly or not so subtly uh, points us to Mary and her son, Jesus. All right, verse 3, while Amaziah did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, he, he did so yet not like David his father. He did in all things as Joash his father had done. But the high places were not removed. The people still sacrificed and made offerings on the high places. And as soon as the royal power was firmly in his hand, he struck down his servants who had struck down the king his father. But he did not put to death the children of the murderers according to what is written in the book of the law of Moses, where the Lord commanded, Fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers, but each one shall die for his own sin. All right, so he enacts revenge, but he does so with some deference, at least, to the law of God. Verse 7, he struck down 10,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt, and took Selah by storm and called it Jokthiel, which is its name to this day. Then Amaziah sent messengers to Jehoash, the son of Jehoahaz, son of Jehu, king of Israel, saying, Come, let us look, on another in, uh, look one another in the face. Okay, so what has happened then, just to maybe make the obvious, more obvious. Um, Amaziah has won a battle against the Edomites. He's feeling pretty good about himself, pretty good about his kingdom. He wants to meet eye to eye with um, Jehoash, king of Israel. What the next verses are going to show us and the context is going to show us is that perhaps this is a challenge. Perhaps this isn't just a diplomatic meeting, that this might be, I am the true king of Israel, of all of God's people. And so it certainly is, this statement by Amaziah is, is taken to be a challenge by Jehoash, king of Israel. All right, so verse 9, And Jehoash, king of Israel, sent word to Amaziah, king of Judah, a thistle on Lebanon sent to a cedar on Lebanon, so who's the thistle? <laughs> Amaziah. Who's the uh, cedar? The author, King Joash. Saying, give your daughter to my son for a wife, and a wild beast of Lebanon passed by and trampled down the thistle. You have indeed struck down Edom, and your heart has lifted you up. Be content with your glory, and stay at home, for why should you provoke trouble so that you fall and Judah with you? All right, so a clever way of saying buzz off. Verse 11, but Amaziah would not listen. And here's where it becomes apparent, you know, we get some reading between the lines here. and the, We're not told up front, but we are told in King Jehoash's response, there apparently is this marriage proposition, and, you know, there's more here than meets the eye. That becomes further evident in verse 11. But Amaziah would not listen. So Jehoash, king of Israel, went up, and he and Amaziah, king of Judah, faced one another in battle at Beth Shemesh, which belongs to Judah. So the, the fact that this escalates to a battle um, shows you that, you know, Amaziah wants more than just some kind of recognition. 
this, every time you have God's people fighting against God's people in this kind of civil war, uh, you have just profound tragedy. And we can't overlook that as we, as we pass by this narrative that, you know, this is, this is brother shedding the, the blood of brother here. And really speaks to the low point of uh, Israel's history, yet another great valley here. Okay, what happens, verse 12, And Judah was defeated by Israel, and every man fled to his home. And Jehoash, king of Israel, captured Amaziah, king of Judah, the son of Jehoash, son of Ahaziah, at Beth Shemesh, and came to Jerusalem, and broke down the wall of Jerusalem for 400 cubits from the Ephraim gate to the corner gate. I think that the study note says that this is the northern side. But I'll commend that to you. Verse 14, And he seized all the gold and silver and all the vessels that were found in the house of the Lord and in the treasuries of the king's house. So remember when Solomon makes the temple and the king's house, and so both of these are plundered by, uh, by the king of Israel. So he seizes everything from the house of the Lord, everything from the treasuries of the king's house. He also seizes hostages, and then he returned to Samaria, the capital city of the north. What has, uh, what has the king of Israel just acted exactly like? A pagan king. Yeah, indistinguishable. He comes in, he plunders the Lord's house, he plunders the king's house, he takes hostages, he hauls them away. You know, that, this, is what we're, this is what we're meant to see. You can think all the way back to, uh, remember the book of Joshua, even before the judges, before all this king's nonsense, going all the way back. Um, you can think of how God brought his people out of Egypt into the promised land in order to punish the pagan peoples, push them out, inherit the promised land, and live differently than them. Here we are, all of these centuries later, and things have devolved to the point where Israel, the ten northern tribes, are indistinct from pagan, the pagan nations. And all that really remains in whatever sense it remains is Judah. And Judah only remains because of God's grace and mercy. Uh, as you can see, Judah in terms of political uh, and military might is just a non-factor. It's just kind of a gnat at this time in the ancient world. And yet God sustains them by his, uh, by his power. So we have a great tragedy in this civil war, yet another one. We have a great tragedy that Israel acts no different than a pagan nation. We can see how, how things have devolved so greatly in Israel. And why is, the, why is the author setting this stage for us? Well, because we're coming swiftly to the exile of, the, of Israel, the destruction of Israel by Assyria, um, 723-722. And that gives us context, too. We're roughly in the, I mean, we are, we are in the 8th century right now. Okay, verse 15. Now, the rest of the acts of Jehoash that he did, and his might, and how he fought with Amaziah king of Judah, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? And Jehoash slept with his fathers and was buried in Samaria with the kings of Israel. And Jeroboam, his son, reigned in his place. 
Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, lived 15 years after the death of Jehoash, son of Jehoahaz, king of Israel. Now the rest of the deeds of Amaziah, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? And they made a conspiracy against him in Jerusalem, and he fled to Lachish. But they sent after him to Lachish and put him to death there. And they brought him on horses, and he was buried in Jerusalem with his fathers in the city of David. And all the people of Judah took Azariah, who was 16 years old, and made him king instead of his father Amaziah. He built Eleth and restored to Judah. Sorry, I've got too many marks in my Bible here. He built Eleth and restored it to Judah after the king slept with his fathers. Okay, as we're going to see... Wait a minute, is that right? Mm, no, I take that back. Never mind. There are two... Uh, let me make sure I have this right. No, I think that this is. I think that this is. So Azariah also goes by Uzziah. Do you remember? You might remember Uzziah from uh, Isaiah. Um, I think it's. I think it's Isaiah six, isn't it? That famous the the seraphim and all of that. And then, but we're told like in the days of King Uzziah, that's when this transpires. So Azariah in Judah is is Uzziah in Judah, and that becomes. I think that that, I mean, that certainly becomes more apparent um, a few sections forward in verse thir uh, 13 and following. Uh, but I think that this mention of Azariah is the first mention of uh, Uzziah. Two names, same guy. Okay, well, be that as it may, we'll make sure that the, I have that right as we move forward in the narrative. Uh, be that as it may, then, um, we have that section um, wrapped up, and then we move into Jeroboam II and his reign in Israel. Uh, Jeroboam II is really a uh, kind of a remarkable king just from earthly standards, and he's given fairly short shrift here in the biblical text. He is the third that come from the line of Jehu, and there are four before Jehu's line is finished. Sure. Uh, I know Israel by Galilee at, at the north. Okay, but what's this with Samaria and where's Galilee at this point? Where's Samaria and Galilee? The well, I mean, here he's, a, he's king in Samaria. Yeah, so Samaria is the capital city of uh, Israel, and sometimes Samaria is used for Israel. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so then this takes us to Jeroboam 2, Jeroboam the second, verse 23. In the fifteenth year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria, and he reigned forty-one years. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. Um, remember, that's, that's synonymous with golden calf worship which he made Israel to sin, sin here apostasy, not just sin, 
He restored the border of Israel from Lebo Hamath as far as the Sea of the Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amity, the prophet, who was from Gath Hefer. Okay, is this the is this the prophet Jonah after whom the book is named? Yes, probably so. Eighth century. You can drop down to actually this is a whole this whole footnote's interesting. I highlighted it here. Uh, on 1425. So during Joab Jeroboam II's reign, both Syria and Assyria were too weak to prevent the extension of his domain as far north as Lebo Hamath and as far south as the Sea of the Arabah, the, the Salt Sea. And so that's why I was saying, like, Jeroboam is a prolific king by earthly standards relative to the others of Israel. The prosperity that followed this expansion brought moral degeneracy social evils, and religious corruption, which in turn called forth vehement denunciations and dire threats of punishment by the prophets Amos and Hosea. So if you remember back, I mean, what was it, decades ago already that we did the Minor Prophets? Feels like it. But when we did the Minor Prophets, particularly Amos and Hosea, this is the milieu into which they're speaking. And prophesying. And, and even the other minor prophets after the collapse of Israel in the north, they're speaking to Judah saying, hey, the same thing's going to happen to you. The Babylonians are going to come for you. So that gives us a, a flavor for just tying in the rest of the scriptures with where we are in terms of historical narrative. Jonah is alive and around. I don't know if this is before or after he's spit out by the fish. The study note on 25 also mentions Jonah toward the bottom. And the editors remark, the international situation that made possible Jeroboam's rise to power was not an accident of history. The Lord of the nations made it known in advance through the same prophet whom he chose to bring a message of repentance to the Assyrians. And there specifically we're thinking of Nineveh. Okay, well, with the Assyrians constantly coming down and, um, you know, killing God's people and making sure, that, making sure that the pregnant women, that their babies were killed, you know, and all of this and just the atrocities that were committed. Now I think you can get a little bit of a feel for when, when God says to Jonah, hey, go up to these people and tell them to repent. Jonah's like, no. I mean, it's, quite, it's actually quite reasonable. It, I think sometimes when we look at it outside of like a historical vacuum, it's like, well, I'd never be Jonah. And if you look at it in this historical context and you see like the atrocities that the Assyrians are committing against the women and children and babies, unborn babies for crying out loud of Israel, you just, you just go like, yeah, no. Now find somebody else. I'm getting the next motorboat out of here. So yeah, that gives us a little context for Jonah. Okay, uh, verse 28, and then we'll, we'll bring Jeroboam to this section on him to a close, and we'll pause to see if you have any reflections. Verse 28, now the rest of the acts of Jeroboam and all that he did and his might, how he fought and how he restored Damascus and Hamath to Judah in Israel, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? And again, just that's a reference to a book that's no longer extant. We don't have it. 
And Jeroboam slept with his fathers, the kings of Israel. And Zechariah, not the prophet in this case, Zechariah, his son, reigned in his place. All right. So that's what's going on now in Israel. And then we're going to jump back down south to Judah and then just kind of back and forth. But we're going to start to focus increasingly on Israel because Israel is coming to the end of its timeline. I have a question on the note that said it wasn't an accident of history. Are there accidents of history? <laughs> you, can't, you can't let me take a sip of coffee and then ask me that kind of question. <laughs> I would, my position on that question would be no, there aren't. Yeah, there aren't accidents of history. Everything is under God's control and governance. Yeah. If we, if we lose that, we lose, we lose everything because we lose God's ability to keep a promise if there's something outside of his control. Yeah, yeah I think that this is just sort of an English idiom for, uh, we can, we, I think rather it was, it's trying to say we can see how God orchestrated these events. Yeah. Please, sir. Oh, yeah, behind you. Um, you said several times that this was the end of Israel or start the beginning of the end for Israel. Yeah, sure. Um, how long would you say that end it lasts? Because obviously we've got to go through a lot of things between now and, and the New Testament. In the last prophet, um, uh, the Baptist, John, mm -hmm. Uh, so it's the beginning of the end, kind of, or? Well, yeah, I was not being very accurate. So uh, to be a little bit more accurate, just roughly have in your mind, David's date is 1000 BC. Right. You know, it really straddles that. Uh, next comes Solomon. Next comes the divided kingdom. So the divided kingdom, so the kingdom is divided in the early half of uh, the 10th century. Then you go the 9th century and the 8th century, by the, by the early half of the 8th century, 723, 722, it's done. So what would that be? Roughly 200 years? And yeah. we're closing in on the last 70 years maybe of that time, just very roughly speaking. So that's what I kind of mean by this is the beginning of the end and you can just see the demise and more just in a narrative presentation sort of way. So the follow-up to that is, do you mean that in the sense that they've, they're losing their faith? Or is it just the end of the, the whole thing? Yeah, well, the, I, so I'm talking specifically about the ten tribes in the north. Okay. And just their, um, their existence as a nation state is br being brought by God to a closure. Okay. They've made themselves no different. You know, remember how God says, you are my chosen people? I mean, they've, made them, they've rejected that and made themselves no different than a pagan nation. And because God is just and is the God of the nations, what goes for the rest now goes for Israel. Israel has elected to simply be one of the other nations, and so they'll be treated as such. And so okay. we just see God's judgment falling upon them and that all wrapping up. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Judah, in many respects, is no better than Israel. I, you know, that's a, that would be a complicated argument, but in many respects is no better. They endure because of God's promise and because of God's grace and the promise he made to 
Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to David and the promise that he's going to see through that through Judah will come the Messiah. That's why they remain. That's why even when they're taken into captivity by the Babylonians, they return, whereas the ten northern tribes don't return from their exile. Yeah. Um, my oh, comment sir, is, yeah. talk a little bit, because I, um, I like Jonah, and there's several reasons why, mm -hmm. and maybe you can comment. One is because I like the way he preaches to the Ninevites, just because it's a, like the shortest sermon in the Bible? Y yes, and yeah. also because <laughs> it goes back like to what time. we were studying earlier, that it's by God's grace because they repent. So, oh, yeah, uh, yeah. exactly. So your attitude can be lousy, and who cares? Because yeah, God's going to fix there's it. There's some kind of repentance and co conversion amongst the Ninevites. It's really bizarre. Well, we even see that with Elisha being the one who anoints Hezael and Hezael receiving that. Now, th this, is, um, this is one of the ways in which kind of our oversimplification that maybe takes place by necessity as we're children and learning these stories uh, really needs to grow as we grow. And we need to see that the faith of Yahweh in the ancient world uh, spreads out. It's not contained specifically to Israel at any stage. And you can see the influence and the, uh, the appeal of Yahweh, the miracles of Yahweh, stretch out and spread out into the neighboring pagan cultures and that those there are probably many among them who are saved i mean god willing and the text seems to indicate in places yeah so god wants to have grace on um on the assyrians on nineveh why because yeah because god's just gracious and so he sends jonah and jonah's not down with it and i think if we really pay attention to the, like the history we wouldn't be down with it either i mean you know i don't know what the american parallel would be like like go and and convert like the bin Laden, bin Laden clan. I mean, I don't know what the parallel would be. There probably isn't a very good parallel, but it would just think of about the most repugnant and abhorrent people you can think of, and that's where you're going. But also the preacher doesn't matter because your attitude can be, as the preacher, be lousy. Yeah, the preacher's attitude doesn't matter. Jonah was not really a preaching a heartfelt sermon. Again, I remarked that it's like one of the shortest in the scripture. I think it's one line, like, repent or God's going to destroy you. I'm pretty sure it's a sermon. It's not even technically gospel there. <laughs> I, mean, I guess the go I guess the <laughs> I guess the gospel or is not. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah. Well said. It, there's the. It illustrates that it's not the preacher, but the word, and it illustrates that the word, even at a bare minimum, is powerful to convert hearts and minds. So the king of Nineveh and everybody else with him repents, even down to the animals. They've got the animals in sackcloth and ash. Yeah. Yeah, Jonah's a great text. Okay, um, anything else? All right, so we left off then chapter 15, verse 1, with Azariah reigning in Judah. In the 27th year of Jeroboam, king of Israel, Azariah, the son of Amaziah, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 16 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 52 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name, ah, one more time, and also, at least in this section, I wonder if it's throughout 2 Kings. I, I wouldn't doubt it, actually. Uh, we see none of this mentioned in regard to Israel, but we see two references here in regard to Judah. His mother's name was Jecoliah of Jerusalem, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that his father Amaziah had done. 
Nevertheless, the high places were not taken away. The people still sacrificed and made offerings on the high places. And the Lord touched the king so that he was a leper to the days of his death. And he lived in a separate house. I don't know, I find this incredible because you have a good king and he's punished. Why? I mean, maybe Chronicles gives an answer, but this author is no. And remember, this author is, I, I mean this tongue-in-cheek, deceptive. Deceptive in the sense of, like, here's the history, but he's always giving you cues along the way to pause and think and ponder and to take in the events more deeply. And I think that this is yet one more invitation he gives us. Like, how is this? We've seen so many wicked kings, and they, you know, they're not punished by the Lord. And then here is a good and faithful king, relatively speaking, and he is punished by the Lord. It's really rather remarkable. And in this respect, he shows forth Christ, you know, as the one true good king who is punished in the ultimate sense, bearing the sins of the world, and is truly forsaken by God. So even if it's a slight foreshadowing of Jesus, it's nonetheless a foreshadowing of Jesus. And I would think that that's really his glory here in this text. Yes, please. Um, We've heard it so many times. They didn't take away the high places. And yeah, I, I don't I, think I've heard it a single time, in fact. <laughs> well, that they did take, well. But my point is, fast forward to today. Would the equivalent be our president and legislature and government taking away abortion? Or is that a stretch? Well, yeah, I mean, that's a good argument. I mean, that's a good question. I, the argument's really rather complex because with Israel, you have such a unique, and Israel and Judah, you have such a unique animal because you have really, in terms of history, the only true theocratic, objectively theocratic state. And so everything's different. It's hard to compare any orange to that apple. You know okay. what I mean? So we could say it's semi-parallel. Um, the refusal of our governors to take away abortion, that kind of thing. Yeah, but, but it would only be loosely. It would only be parallel insofar as. Okay. Yeah. Note on 15.5. Touched or struck implying punishment. Yeah. Um, a leper. Account in Second Chronicles 26 states that the Lord had touched him with the disease. Oh, here you go. Thank you. Thank you, Liz because he usurped the priestly function of offering incense in the temple. Okay, yeah, that's a big deal. Thank you. Thank you for putting that out. Little detail. Yeah, so there was, this wasn't... Um, yeah, hang on one second. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. That's right, because this is Uziah. And so, yeah, Uzi was struck with leprosy for exactly that thing. Yeah, thank you, Liz. So I stand corrected on that. Um, as the study note points out from Second Chronicles, his punishment was for violating his office and going and doing what God had only given the Levitical priesthood to do. I want to say there's some other example of that. I, I think Saul is guilty of that. And it wouldn't surprise me if there were uh, a few other wicked kings along the way. Okay, let's see. Is that everything? It's not actually everything with Azariah, but is that this section? No. Uh, verse 2, And Jotham, 
the king's son was over the household, governing the people of the land. Now the rest of the acts of Azariah and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? And Azariah slept with his fathers, and they buried him with his fathers in the city of David. And Jotham, his son, reigned in his place. Okay, so that had us down in Judah. Now we go back up to Israel. And if you just glimpse at the tops of the headings, you're going to see that we're in Israel for a while. Zechariah here um, is the fourth and final in the line of Jehu. So that draws that chapter to a close, that dynasty to a close. And then um, you're going to have just Israel, 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 um, all the way up until we get to uh, Jotham. And in a sense, by the time we're done with this, by the time we've hit the end of 31, um, we have, in a sort of narrative way, we've already touched on the end of Israel. So you'll see what I mean as we get there. But the chronology of this section um, lines up with the chronology of the fall of Israel, which isn't treated in this text until the 17th chapter. Okay, so any thoughts, any questions before we move on to Zechariah? Good to go? All right. Verse 8. In the 38th year of Azariah, king of Judah, Zechariah, the son of Jeroboam, reigned over Israel in Samaria six months. That's it. So I think that this is a very volatile time. Let me see if I've got that study note marked. Hmm. Yeah, well, we're going to see six months. We're going to see two years. Anyway, really short time time frames for the kingships here in this section. Uh, really volatile. Verse 9, And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, as his fathers had done. He did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. Shalom, the son of Jabesh, conspired against him and struck him down at Ibleim, and put him to death and reigned in his place. Now the rest of the deeds of Zechariah, behold, they are written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel. This was the promise of the Lord that he gave to Jehu, your sons shall sit on the throne of Israel to the fourth generation. And so it came to pass. All right, so that's important because we're tracking the Lord, we're tracking his ability to keep his promise. And we're noting throughout this text at various points in time in which he does. Okay, verse 13, Shalom, the son of Jabesh, began to reign in the 39th year of Uzziah, king of Judah. And I, I think this might be the same note that points out the connection. Hmm. It's not. Anyway, you'll have to take my word for it or find it in the study note. But Uzziah is the same as uh, Azariah. So Uzziah, king of Judah, and he reigned one month in Samaria. There's one month. Six months, one month. Then Menahem, the son of Gadi, came up from Tirzah and came to Samaria, and he struck down uh, Shalom, the son of Jabesh in Samaria and put him to death and reigned in his place. Now the rest of the deeds of Shalom and the conspiracy that he made, behold, they are written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel. At that time, Menahem sacked Tipsa, 
and all who were in it and its territory from Tirzah on because they did not open it to him. Therefore he sacked it and he ripped open all the women who were pregnant. Now this is um, Israelite on Israelite crime. So if you look at the note on 60, verse 16, this isn't pagans doing this to God's people. This is God's people become pagans doing it to God's people. So uh, Tipsa is allotted to Ephraim. This city was located 15 miles south of Tirzah. And then um, they did not open, that is, they would not surrender to his reign. And then brutality intended to destroy the city's next generation. So this is how, you know, this is how God's people are treating each other. Pretty. And you thought the voters' meetings got tense. <laughs> All right, um, Menahem reigns in Israel, verse 17. In the 39th year of Azariah, king of Judah. Yeah, and again, this is uh, Uzziah. Menahem, the son of God, he began to reign over Israel, and he reigned 10 years in Samaria. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart all his days from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. Pull the king of Assyria. Now, this is important, and the study note on 15, 17 through 22 points this out. Assyria, the kingdom by which the Lord will eventually punish Israel with exile, now appears and takes tribute. Israel would fall within a generation's time. So Assyria, uh, Pol, the king of Assyria, came against the land, and Menahem gave Pol a thousand talents of silver that he might help him to confirm his hold on the royal power. Menahem exacted the money from Israel, that is, from all the wealthy men, 50 shekels of silver from every man to give to the king of Assyria. So the king of Assyria turned back and did not stay there in the land. Now the rest of the deeds of Menahem and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? And Menahem slept with his fathers, and Pekiah, his son, reigned in his place. All right, so I mean, what are we seeing in the Wicked Kings? We're seeing idolatry. Um, we're seeing, we're seeing um, no calling upon the Lord whatsoever, no seeking his help whatsoever, relying upon mammon, relying upon themselves, pragmatism, cynicism, corruption. Um, and all of these things then more broadly would be taken to be marks of the, the reign of the Antichrist and the reign of Christ uh, in contrast to these things. All right, well, we have Pekiah and then we have Pekah. Those are the next two. And then we're, we're, we're going to have, uh, I think, Hoshea after that. And that brings us to an end of the kings in the north. All right, verse 23, in the 50th year of Azariah, king of Judah, Pekiah, the son of Menahem, began to reign over Israel in Samaria, and he reigned two years. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not turn away from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. And Pekah, the son of Remaliah, his captain, conspired against him with 50 men of the people of Gilead, and struck him down in Samaria in the citadel of the king's house with Argob and Ariah. 
he put him to death and reigned in his place. Now the rest of the deeds of Pekahiah and all that he did, behold, they are written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel. Okay, on to the next. I'm sorry I don't have anything really uh, dramatic to remark there. In the 52nd year of Azariah, king of Judah, well, I guess we could say that at least Judah is much more stable, even if their king isn't, uh, has his own issues, obviously. Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, began to reign over Israel and Samaria, and he reigned 20 years, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, the sons of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. In the days of Pekah, king of Israel, Tiglath-Pileazar, king of Assyria, came and captured Ejon, Abel-Beth-Makkah, Genoa, Kadesh, Hazor, Gilead, and Galilee, all the land of Naphtali, and he carried the people captive to Assyria. Now, this is something to just kind of have in mind that the, uh, the Assyrians coming down and, and wiping out the ten northern tribes happens over years and years, and there's different exiles where the people are taken away, and there's different campaigns where different cities are captured and destroyed. It's not so much like, you know, we kind of have in our minds, I don't know, modern wars, like especially the, the Middle Eastern wars, remember in the 90s, and you could watch it on TV, and it was like over in three days or something, remember that? Um, yeah, ancient wars in particular are um, like these decades-long grinds uh, of different and various campaigns, and they're holistic. It's not just military against military or something like that, but they're, you know, it's taking over um, people and places. Okay, uh, yeah, so then verse 30. I mean, obviously, what are all these places? These are all places in the north that belong to Israel, and they're being taken by Tigliath-Pileazar. Then Hoshea the son of Elah made a conspiracy against Pekah the king, or Pekah the son of Ramalia, and struck him down and put him to death and reigned in his place. In the twentieth year of Jotham the son of Uziah. Now see you see Uziah suddenly showing up. So Uziah and Azariah, same guy. Now the rest of the acts of Pekah, all that he did, behold, they are written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel. And if you look at the study note on verse thirty. Samaria and the adjacent area retained some semblance of independence under the next Israelite king, Hoshea. However, he ruled only by the will of the Assyrian overlord. Tigliath Pileazar III recorded that he placed Hoshea on the throne and exacted 10 talents of gold and 1,000 talents of silver from him as a tribute. Yeah, so this, you know, just depending on how you're, how you're thinking and what your definition is, Hoshea is kind of the end of the, end of the north. So what you're going to see, and we're drawing to a close here, I know that this, this material has been so engaging to you that you just you hate to see it, the time be over already. Um, but, but next we're going to move down to Jotham in Judah. Ahaz in Judah, and Ahaz is a particularly nasty person. And then, and then we're going over to the fall of Israel. And so that's a big deal, the exile on account of a, uh, idolatry. And um, then it just, 
it largely just becomes Judah in the narrative moving forward. And we're going to get to spend some time with, uh, with Isaiah. We're going to see some good kings, finally, Hezekiah, Josiah. Um, and then ultimately, of course, we're going to come in, in chapter 25 to the fall and captivity of Judah. So, uh, with that uh, cheery material in your mind, the Lord be with you.